won't be doing the preaching, but I'm happy to introduce our guest preacher, uh, who is Kyle Heinzman. Uh, if you've been around this church for a long time, you probably know who Kyle is. You've seen him before. Uh, he has family here to listen to him preach. Uh, unfortunately, Mark and Lori could not be here this morning, but I'm sure that we have a very proud mom and dad live streaming at home as we speak. Uh, if you don't know Kyle, he has been around for a long time, grew up in this church. Uh, he was involved in several different ministries throughout high school and throughout college. And uh, I remember multiple lunches that Kyle and I have had over the years uh, at Five Guys or Blaze Pizza most recently, or even sitting out in the lobby uh, sharing peanut butter sandwiches. At least that's what I had that day. We brought lunch from home. And just talking about ministry and talking about life, and uh, it's been great to see him grow into this really mature, godly, gifted young man uh, that we all get to hear preach this morning. So Kyle is working full-time, still living locally, uh, worshiping at a different church, but then most recently, he's also taken over the reins of Bring Good News International, which, as we said, is a missions organization that you can learn more about in the lobby. So Kyle will be preaching this morning. We're grateful to have him. So Kyle, take it away. Thanks, Ben. I feel like Ben pretty much did the full introduction. I was going to spend the first minute or two just introducing myself, but I... uh, I don't think I need to do that. Um, it's really good to be back here. I know a lot of your faces. I've seen a lot of you guys before. Um, some new faces that I don't know. Um, and I'd love to get to meet you guys afterwards. Like Ben said, I'm kind of here with Bring Good News International. It's a uh, uh, missions organization that I've recently kind of taken over the reins of. Rick Wolford, who's sitting in the back there, he's actually a, a neighbor of my parents. Um, he had recently kind of stepped down. He was looking to retire and kind of... Um, asked me if I'd be interested in the opportunity. And that's been about a year and a half ago that that happened. So, um, yeah, really excited um, with that opportunity. Would love to talk to you guys more about that. Um, really excited about that. But it's also just really good to be back here. Like Ben said, um, this church is really special to me. I grew up in this church. I was discipled in this church. I came to faith in this church. So um, it's really good to be back here. I, when, I, when I think about this church, I thank God because... Um, so many good gifts were given to me through this church. So thank you guys for having me. Um, and it's just really good to be back. So, and I could talk about missions all day. Would love to talk to you guys about it afterwards. Um, after the service, so come by and talk to Rick and I would, would be happy to answer any questions or, um, just talk to you guys about that. But, um, I also love talking about the word of God and that's, that's what I want to do, uh, the rest of our time this morning together. Um, we're going to be in Psalm 16 this morning. So if you guys have a copy of God's word with you. Let's go and invite you to turn to Psalm 16. That's the text we're going to be in this morning. I've had a couple people ask me over the last couple weeks as I've kind of been preparing for this sermon, why Psalm 16? What's the reason for it? I promise you it's not because that's the college number of my favorite athlete, Peyton Manning. I promise that's not the reason. The real reason um, is it's just a scripture that the Lord's been putting on my heart the last couple months, and I've just kind of been sitting in it quite a bit. Um, back in September... The Lord specifically in this psalm dropped verse 11, just seemingly out of nowhere, onto my mind as I was um, kind of at a, a crossroads and at a time where I was just struggling with contentment and joy. Um, and the Lord just dropped this scripture onto my mind. Um, so this scripture has been convicting me, encouraging me, and changing my heart as of late. And I hope that the Lord, by his Holy Spirit, will do that for us this morning as well. I think there's just so much to unpack in this psalm. Um, I don't know if you guys have heard the phrase before. Sorry if this steps on your toes. Don't worry, it's already crushed my feet. So I've experienced a lot of a lot of heart change and a lot of conviction through this psalm um, already as I've been preparing for it. 
And I think um, seasons of suffering and seasons of hardship, um, it's in those seasons that we really learn what our hope is in. And when, when the pressure is put on us, when we're squeezed, um, we see what's at our very core, what we trust, what we trust and what our confidence is in. And I think in our scripture today, that's what we're going to see from David, who's the psalmist who, who wrote this psalm. And there are two questions that I'd like for us to consider before we dive in. And I think we're going to be coming back to these questions. The text is going to ask these questions of us as we're reading it. And at the end, I'm going to re-ask these questions. And they're just two very simple questions. Um, The two questions are this. What is your treasure? And what is your confidence? What is your treasure and what is your confidence? So I'm going to pray for us real quick and just invite the Holy Spirit to minister to us this morning. Um, And then we're going to just jump right in. So I'm going to pray real quick for us. Lord, um, thank you for this church. Thank you for Prairie View. Thank you for Ben and his leadership and the elders um, and just the faithful church that this has been over the years to minister the word of God um, and to shepherd these people. Lord, I'm just thankful for Prairie View. I'm thankful for the opportunity to be able to just open your word together in Psalm 16 this morning. Lord, would you by your Holy Spirit teach us? God, we, we come humbly before you this morning. Um, God, and we ask that you would teach us. We ask that you administer to our hearts however we need this morning. Lord, you would convict us where we need convicted. And that you might even remove any veils that are in front of us that would keep us from seeing the goodness that is in you this morning. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 16, starting in verse 1, you can follow along with me, reads as this. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their name on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is right at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. For you make known to me the path of life, and in your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So it's, it's verse 11 that um, has almost been haunting me the past couple months. And I've just been coming back to it over and over again. Um, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there's fullness of joy. And at your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. And I think we see David arrive at that conclusion at the very end of the psalm. But there's a process that he takes to get himself there. That he, he walks us through. And it starts in verse 1. It's a prayerful plea. Go ahead and look at verse 1. Back at verse 1 again. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. It's a prayerful plea from David. And I think that this prayer is one of immense faith. And I think we're going to see that more clearly as we keep walking through this passage. We don't know the exact situation of when David was writing this. But we do know that David spent a lot of his life on the run and in danger. He had a lot of people there out to kill him. They were chasing him. They were fighting uh, so David was on the run quite a bit, so there's a good chance that he was writing this in a place of just turmoil and fear. I think sometimes we can forget that, I mean, maybe it's just me, but David was, was a real guy. He was, he was a real dude that lived on this earth. 
He had real fears, real insecurities. He was a real person. David isn't just a fictional character in a, in a book. He really lived. And so David was probably writing this and praying this out of a place of desperation. And David, he could have had a lot of other places of refuge. He was a powerful king. So he knew a lot of people. He could have said, I'm going to flee to a city. Maybe I have family I can run to. Maybe I can run to this shelter. Maybe that will provide protection for me. He doesn't say that. It's not that, if, that God was the only possible refuge for David, but he is claiming God is his one true refuge. David is putting faith in the Lord alone. And it's clear when he says, in you I take refuge. He leaves no other option for his preservation. And his request to God sits on the foundation of who God is to him. It's the reason for his prayer. It's like he's quite literally saying, I'm hiding myself in you, God. I'm literally hiding myself in you. I'm making you my only hope. So, if this is what you are to me, you need to work in preserving me because I'm putting all my chips in your corner. So prayerful plea in verse 1, I think, sets the stage for the rest of the psalm that David's going to kind of walk us through. In verses 2 through 6, we see David's reasoning for running to God as his refuge. Look to verse 2. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord, and I have no good apart from you. David claims the Lord as his God, and I don't think this is a a selfish or a self-centered, God is mine and mine alone, and that's not what's going on here. But more, it's it's an unreserved, joyous feeling of dependence, more like a child than of a servant, which is what one of the the commentaries said, and I really like that. So you might ask, how, how do you know that it's not a selfish Request. How do you know that? Well, look at the next line. He says, I have no good apart from you. David says there's no good in him, around him, apart from God. His relationship to God is the source of all of his good. So there's nothing in me, there's nothing around me that is good that doesn't come from you, is what David is saying. And this is his reason for taking refuge in God, because God is his only true good. It's almost as if David, he's viewing his situation in his despair, and he starts to turn his gaze upward as we look into even verse 3 and 4. As for the saints in the land there, the excellent ones in whom is all my delight, the sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. Of all the people who he is most glad with, it's, it's those who treasure God. You might ask, why are they his delight? Didn't he just say God was his delight? Didn't he just say that in the previous verse? So as as he's looking around at the world, as he's seeing what's around him, as he's surveying the context of his life, the best thing that he sees is God's people. That's what he's, and why? Because where are God's people from? They're from God, his only good. So David finds his greatest delight on the earth in the people that treasure God, which is his treasure. So it's almost as if David is saying, I I can see God in them. They resemble God. I sense it around them when I'm with them. I see it in them. And since it is God that is his only true good, anything else that is being chased after is less than good. Look at verse 4. Their sorrows will multiply. If God is the source and substance of all good in this world, 
And those who don't run after God, they can only be running after a lesser good, sorrow. And that's going to multiply. That's what David's saying. I think a, a great question for us to examine our own relationship with God is, is, do I love God's people and do I love being with them? And those who are really after God's heart. I'm not, I'm not just talking about churchgoers. I'm not talking about religious people or conservatives. I mean the people who hunger and thirst for God and the things of God. Do you enjoy being with people like that? And I know God's people aren't perfect. They can hurt. We've been hurt by God's people. I've hurt people. But if you find yourself not wanting to be with people, if you don't like being around a certain kind of people, it's probably because you have a different treasure than they do. You know, one, one of my closest friends got married yesterday. I was talking to a couple people about it earlier. Um, and this is a guy I've known for um, about 12 years now, one of my closest friends. And it was just such a joy for, for me to just see all of these groomsmen who were all really close friends just gather around Chandler, who's my friend, and just pray for him, lay our hands on him, and just bless him and encourage him right before we send him down the aisle. Um, and then he met a godly woman at the end of that aisle, and she had people praying for her and encouraging her and um, sending them off into this new season of life. And all of the friends and family gathered together under God's roof, and we were just exulting, praising the Lord for what he's done. And, and I just found myself like so joyful yesterday just being a part of it, being around God's people. And I was just thinking about this last night. I literally added this in last night because it reminded me of God. Being around God's people reminded me of God, the one true good. And I think that's what David is saying here. He's, he's saying the people of God and the things of God uh, that bring him most joy, it, it is God's people. When he's, when he's surveying what's around him, it's God's people that bring him the most joy because it reminds him of God. And he continues this. Look at verse 5. The Lord is my chosen portion in my cup. You hold my lot. Of all the portions, all the things that David could have had, uh, he said the greatest of all, and the best of them is God. He probably had a lot of things to choose from, a lot of portions. Like I said, he's a wealthy king. Could have got any food he wanted, any kind of drink he wanted. He had a lot of things that could have been on his table. But he's saying, when I see everything that's on my table in front of me, I see God. He's my chosen portion. That's the one that I want. He's the one that I want. He's the best one. And because he is my only good, he is my highest treasure. That's what David's saying. I think at this point in the psalm, as I've just even been reading this more the last week or two, I think verse 6 is where David really kind of like turns the knob and starts turning up the intensity. Look with me in verse 6. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places, Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. What is David talking about here with lines? He's talking about fishing lines, like long lines at Disney World, fast food lines. What was he talking about? What lines is he talking about here? He's talking about boundary lines, land. Certainly physical land could be included in what he's talking about. um, Because if he receives something from God who is his sovereign God, then it came from him, and that's good. But I don't think that's what David's really getting at here. I don't think he's talking about physical land. The word used for pleasant places in this verse, in the original language, it's the same word that David uses in verse 11 when he uses the word pleasures. It's the exact same word. And what is, what is David talking about in verse 11? He's talking about the presence of God when he's talking about pleasures. 
And David's a smart guy. He was a smart guy. I think he knew what he was doing here. He says, the Lord holds my lot. You define the borders for me, God. And those borders, what do they do? They, they bring me into relationship with God. That's what the borders are doing. The district that the lines have created, the county that I'm in, it's, it's fellowship with God. I think that's what David's saying here. The lines have fallen in pleasant places for me because I have you. Because I have you, God. And if we need further convincing of what he's talking about, look at the second half of verse 6. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. What's the inheritance he's talking about? He could have been talking about a family inheritance, maybe. But David, he was the youngest son in a large family. And for Jewish culture, the oldest son is the one who got all the inheritance. Uh, so I think it's safe to say he isn't referring to a family inheritance. His oldest siblings would have gotten all that. You know, I was I was the youngest sibling of two kids, so I, I can totally relate to David and my older sibling taking literally everything from me. I can relate. The Lord's my inheritance, right? So I, I believe David isn't looking at an earthly inheritance here because he, he didn't really have a family inheritance. He sees his inheritance as being one from God. And more than that, God himself is his inheritance. God himself. The giver and the gift are one and the same, is what David's saying. The boundaries that have been created for me is presence with God, and that is my gift. The giver and the gift are one and the same. Maybe some of you are thinking, Kyle, is this where you're telling me that it's bad to have a family inheritance or to have land or have a nice house or... I'm not saying that, but that's not what David's talking about when he's thinking of treasure and inheritance. That's not what he's talking about. His treasure is not in these things. He's not looking at the earth for his treasure. How often are we looking at things around us for things of this earth for our treasure? So we see that God is a refuge for David. We see that David's greatest treasure is God. And then we see in verse 7 that God is David's trusted counsel. God is a refuge in part in the way that he counsels. He's a refuge by part of the way in which he counsels us. Being a refuge for us isn't passive. It's not like we just wake up one day and we're in refuge with God. It's not a passive thing. I like to think of it as you know a mother who's holding a child's hand in a busy street or a crowded area for safety. You know? Following that counsel of the mother to stay close to me is also the way that you experience the mother being a safe place and a refuge. And so God's counsel for us is a means of him being a refuge. And it's the same with God being a treasure. His, his words, his counsel to us is a treasure. If, if we love God and we love who he is, his words to us are a treasure. And that's what David's saying here. So as we really look at verses 2 through 7 right now, I, I think you could essentially sum up verses 2 through 7. David is just saying, God is my greatest treasure. And you might be like, well, Kyle, why doesn't he just say that in one line? Why does he have to go through all these verses? be an easy sermon. Just say, God is my treasure. I think what David wants us to see is this is a calculated but yet also very heartfelt argument that he's making. He's surveying everything around him, everything on this earth, everything that I have, 
It's almost like he's weighing scales on, on one side. I'm putting everything on one side. You can put everything you want. You can put religion. You can put any earthly inheritance, any earthly good you want on one side. And on the other side, there's God. And he's saying, this is greater. This is better. This is better. It's calculated and it's heartfelt. So what do you treasure? Is the question, what do you treasure? I think there's something really extraordinary that's starting to happen in this psalm. That David's really starting to unpack and unravel here. If we look back to verse 1. David starts with a prayer. Remember that prayer is a plea. It's a request for God to preserve him. And then he starts to wrap this prayer in who God is for him, his treasure. God is his treasure. He's wrapping that prayer in who God is. He's reminding himself of who God is to him. And then look what happens in verse 8. That initial request turns to confidence. He says this, I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. This isn't a request. This is an affirmation. David's soul begins to become settled at peace. Not just because of what God does for him, but because of who God is for him. And God's presence gives him confidence. In verses 9 and 10... As David considers all the blessings that are from God, he finds himself in a place of of peace and gladness. Why? Because God's his confidence. He's confident in who God is for him. And we see a little bit more into what his initial request to be preserved is. What what was that request? We see a little bit more here in verses 9 and 10. He was asking God to preserve him not only in life, but also in death. He says, don't abandon my soul to Sheol. And it's basically, don't let my body go to hell. Don't abandon me, God. And this plea turns into confidence that the Lord won't abandon him. Some of you might know this passage specifically, verses 8 and 11, as as one that Peter cites um, in Acts in the New Testament at the Pentecost. And he and a bunch of other New Testament writers and apostles, they, they see this scripture um, Jesus was the fulfillment of it. The resurrection of Jesus was the greatest fulfillment of this verse, is how these writers saw this on the other side of the cross. And David wrote this hundreds of years before Jesus was born. Hundreds of years. And so I think we have to acknowledge the fact that when David wrote this, he knew that God was going to save him. He had confidence in God, but he didn't know how yet. Jesus was prophesied. They knew that the Messiah was coming, but they, he didn't exactly know how still, but he had trust in God. So why is that important to think about when we're, we're thinking about what David was, was trying to communicate here? Because his faith was in more than what just God did. He didn't exactly know how God would act. His faith was in, and his confidence was in, who God was. Jesus is act on the cross is the greatest fulfillment of this yes it absolutely is and that's god's greatest argument for his mercy and his love for us yes but i think sometimes we need to look beyond the action of god and look what's behind it the heart of god is i want to be your treasure 
I think that's what David's seeing here. And I don't want to be too quick to just jump to how the New Testament writers saw this passage in light of Jesus. I want us to see what David was feeling and experiencing and and running towards in this passage. His treasure and his confidence was not just in what God did. It was in who God was to him. Let's look at verse 11. David's conclusion. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. God is David's treasure. This is everything. And this is, like I said, this is the verse that's been coming to my mind over and over and over again lately. And it's almost like I have to ask the question for myself and ask us this morning is, do I treasure him enough? Do I treasure Christ enough to lose everything else and still have enough? Do you treasure him enough to lose everything else and still have enough? On the other side of the resurrection in the New Testament, I think a lot of the disciples and apostles wrestle with some of the exact same things, especially Apostle Paul. You know, Paul was a Jew, a very devout Jew, a faithful Jew. He persecuted the early church severely before he had an encounter with Jesus. And then in his letter to the church of Philippi, he says this in chapter 3. Though I myself have no reason for confidence in the flesh, also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. In this passage, Paul is addressing a false belief that Jesus plus something, Jesus plus obeying certain Jewish regulations and, and, and laws would make them right with God. And what Paul's saying is, look, if there's anyone who has confidence in the flesh, it's me. It's not a prideful thing, actually. He's not being prideful. He goes down the list. Look at all the things that I had. I was the Jew of all Jews, essentially. You think you were a better Jew? I was a better Jew. I was a better religious guy. I checked every single box. Every single box. That's what he's saying right here. And what, what's, he, what's he really doing? He's, he's weighing the scales. He said, I had everything on this side. I had power as a Jew. I had authority. I had status. I checked every single box. And what did I do? He said, I counted it as loss for the sake of just knowing Christ. He says, I've already stacked the scales completely. I've done it. With religion, rules, power, I've stacked it entirely. And when I put Christ on the other side, what I found is that that 
was the real treasure and everything else was just trash. That's what Paul says. What would cause a guy like Paul to abandon his entire former life and way of living, to sacrifice everything he had as a Jew, the power, the authority, the status as a Pharisee, and count it as loss? I mean, mean, Paul was a real man too. He left all the people that he grew up with, that he trained with as a Pharisee. He probably left his family. He left everything, the status, the power, for the sake of what? To suffer. He suffered. His life was a life of suffering. What would cause a guy to do that? To give everything up just to suffer? What would cause him to do that? Everything on one side. I've stacked it. And on the other side, there's Christ. And Christ is greater, is what he says. And he's worth suffering for. I think Paul learned what it meant to be satisfied in the presence of God, just like David did. He had confidence in who the Lord was to him. And Paul was able to finally see on the other side of what David prophesied about. He knew the resurrection. He had confidence in that. But the treasure was still the same. The treasure is Christ himself. So what is your treasure and what is your confidence in? What I would maybe ask. Have you ever weighed the scales for yourself? Have you ever put everything on one side of the scale for yourself? Religion, church attendance, power, money, family, and then measured that to Christ? Have you done that? What David does and what Paul did is they said, I've put everything on one side of the scale and Christ was better. Christ was greater. He is the true treasure. Everything else, it's a trap. It's not the real thing. This is the real thing. Christ is the real thing. You know, in a room this size, I don't want to make the assumption that everyone has found Christ as their treasure. I would never want to do that. And so if you're here this morning and you have never made Christ your greatest treasure, we had just read a verse, today is the day of salvation. Find him as your treasure. In the New Testament, Jesus gives a parable um, of what the kingdom of heaven is like. He says this, he says it's like a man who finds treasure in a field. And upon finding that treasure, he goes and he sells everything that he has to buy that field where the treasure is at. Everything. And what I find interesting is that man doesn't even really know what the cost of that field is at the time. He doesn't know. Could I have maybe held a little bit of my possessions back and still had enough to buy the field? I don't know. He doesn't care. He went and sold everything. That he might have that treasure. He didn't want to run the risk of holding back some of his life and some of his treasure for losing the ultimate treasure, which is the kingdom of God, which is Christ. If you've never received Christ as your treasure, I just implore you as as one guy to another, 
a guy to a sister, seek him. For many of you who are believers and have found Christ as their greatest treasure, when's the last time you checked the scales for yourself? Because we all do it. We, we find little treasures, little idols here on this earth. We, we're so, Tim Keller says, we're, we're, our heart is an idol factory, right? When's the last time you have taken a look at your life and said, have I, when, when I consider Christ and everything else, which one's greater for me? Where is my treasure at? For David and for Paul, their treasure and their confidence didn't, wasn't in a thing. It was in a person. And that person is Jesus. And I don't think you need me to, at this point, give you an argument for why Jesus should be your treasure or your confidence. I think they've done a pretty good job of that. The writers did. I don't need to give you an argument for that. But I would ask yourself that question. What is my treasure? was my confidence let's pray Lord we thank you for your word this morning we thank you that we God, get just the chance to read from David and from Paul and get to learn from what you have said through them Father Lord, if there's anyone in this room today, Lord, that maybe your spirit is just talking on their hearts. Maybe I've been going to church my whole life. Maybe I've been religious. Maybe I've, I've played the part. But I have not received Christ as my greatest treasure. Lord, would you just convict them in their hearts today? And Lord, would they find peace and gladness in knowing who you are to them? And God... For the many in this room that are believers, would you remind them of the great treasure that Jesus is? That he's greater than any treasure on this earth. And Lord, we can have confidence because of who you are for us. Lord, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word. We pray all these things in your son Jesus Christ's name. Amen.